0: start this morning, uh, we're going to have a little bit of fun. I'm going to ask you three questions, and they're going to allow you to dream a little bit, maybe fantasize, however you'd like to think about that. And the first question I want to ask you is simply this, if you could go anywhere in the world, where would you go? Alaska. Alaska. Wonderful place. Beautiful place, I'm sure. I haven't been there, but great place. Anybody else got a place you'd go? If you could go anywhere in the world, where would you go? Tahiti? Tahiti? Tahiti, that's not, I did not thought about that one. That's a good option. You know, I heard there's a place in Dubai where you can ski inside. That'd be kind of cool to go to that place. My wife in the first service, she yelled out Paris, which I think was a hint to me. Um, she would love to go to the Eiffel Tower, kind of a romantic spot. Maybe you're an adventurous person and you can go climb Mount Everest or something like that. Any other places you think of you want to go to? What's that? Israel. Israel. That'd be cool, the footsteps of Jesus, be able to be there. I couldn't hear you. What was that? Heaven, that would be an amazing place to be. We still got us here right now, so on on this earth, different places that we could go. Hawaii, that's a place that a lot of people would like to be in. Maybe you go to some island no one's ever heard of and just sit on the beach for a while. Or perhaps you'd like to, cold weather like Alaska, somebody mentioned Alaska, maybe you go to Iceland, uh, (laughs) Siberia, anybody, just to go there, you know, just check it out, see what it's like. There's lots of places you could go. If you could go anywhere though, just think in your own mind, you don't have to tell me, but where would you go? Next question. If you could do anything, and I mean your career, but money's no object. So if you could invest your life in any way, you could use your life, do whatever you want with your life, spend your life, however you want to say the phrase, what would you do? And so it's anything, anything just based on your passions, your gifting, maybe you'd be a professional hang glider. Nope, okay. Maybe you'd be a teacher or a chef, or perhaps you would start a business that you've always dreamed of. What would you do? And, and if you could think of, and this would be the third question, a stage of life that you'd want to be in. What stage of life? If you could pick any stage of life, which one would you pick? Some of you might be close to retirement. Maybe it's just a couple years away, and you think of retirement. I want to re- just skip to that. Like the golden years, you know, you've climbed the ladder, you've done the accomplishments, and now you're going to invest in the next generation. So you think about maybe that would be the stage you'd pick. Some people might pick college. College is a fun time, isn't it? Because you're making decisions that are going to shape where you're going to be and what you're going to do in your life. And kind of the world is yours at that stage. That's, that's, a, that's a fun stage. I have four little kids that are seven and under. And sometimes I look at them and I think, I, I knew what it was like to be a kid when I was a kid. I wish I knew how much freedom I actually had when I was a kid. No responsibility. You get to play all day. And the stuff they say, they can get away with saying anything. Okay? That's great. They don't care. They'll walk into a room. They'll start dancing. They don't even care what anybody thinks. Run around the yard naked. Talk about freedom. Right, I mean, what a stage of life to go back to that, to, to just know that total freedom. That'd be something, wouldn't it? My wife and I, because we have these four little kids, a lot of times people feel comfortable just approaching us in public, and it's predictable sometimes the things that people say. If it's a, if it's a man and he sees I have got four little girls, a lot of times he'll come up to me and he'll say, I hope you have a shotgun, <laughs> which if I'm not mentally thinking about the fact he just realized I have four little girls, I'm like, that is a weird statement. Like, what do you, why do you want to know if I have a shotgun? I'm going to go hunting? Like, what is it? But for those of you who have little boys, uh, I I do actually have a shotgun at my house, just so you're aware. Um, Just heads up. And uh, what what oftentimes females will do is they'll come up and they will say, and it's more times to my wife than it is to me, but sometimes when we're together, specifically at grocery stores or if we're at the mall or someplace like that, they'll walk up and they'll just say, enjoy this stage. A lot of times it's older women who their children have grown or they're out of the house now and say, just enjoy this time and we're thinking to ourselves did you not just see what happened like two seconds before you walked you know snotty nose just got stuffed in somebody else's ear and then you know, stuff's just happening you know picking and fighting there's discipline and messes and all kinds of stuff happens all day long sometimes at the end of the day we put them to bed and it's just like ah. we accomplished something because they're in bed you know just because it's done this is to enjoy this stage people will say to enjoy this stage what stage would you pick if you could pick any stage Little kids, maybe you'd be a little kid, maybe, what stage would you pick? And if you're thinking through these things, where would you go, what would you do, what stage would you be in? You've got to ask yourself this question, why does God have you here now? Why does God have you in the exact situation that you're in now, in the location that you're in now, in the stage of life that you're in now, doing the thing that you're doing now, whether you're a homemaker, whether you're a lawyer, whether you're in college, whatever it is that you're doing right now, why does he have you there? And we're going to look at the life of a guy that we've looked at before, his name's Peter If you were to ask him those questions, what would you do? Where would you go? What what stage would you pick? It's not unlikely that Peter could potentially say, I'd love to be fishing on the Sea of Galilee with the wind in my face. It's a place where I feel comfortable. I feel in control. I just feel a sense of peace there. But that's not where God has him. Because God has him on a different mission now. He's no longer a fisherman. He's a fisher of men. And he's not just picking where he wants to be, but he's going as God directs him. And the reason that he's doing that in the passage of Scripture we're going to look at today is because God's got him in a place of preparation. And for some of you, that might be why God has you where he has you today. He's preparing you for his plan. He's got you in a place, a time, a situation, circumstances, a career, and the exact relationships, the exact stage of life, because he's preparing you for his plan for you whether that's triumph or whether that's tragedy whether that's difficulty whether that's excitement whether you're on the top of the mountain or you're walking through the valley right now God may be working in your life in such a way that he's preparing you for the thing that he has for you as a plan for your life and that's what he was doing with Peter if you have a Bible I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 9 we're going to see Peter in this preparation time period starting in verse 32 if you don't have a Bible. The verses will be up on the screen, but if you want, you can find it in your iPad or a copy of the scripture that you brought. We left off last week. was in verse 31. It was really a summary of what was taking place. The church was at peace. Persecution had slowed down. The political climate had changed. Saul was now a Christian, and the church was growing numerically, and people were living in the fear of the Lord. And then verse 32 picks up and says, As Peter traveled about the country, he went to visit the saints in, in Lydda or Lydda, depending on how you want to pronounce that, there he found a man named Aeneas, a paralytic who had been bedridden for eight years. It's a long time. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and take care of your mat. Immediately, Aeneas got up. All those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. And then parentheses, it says, was translated as Dorcas. That'd be the Greek translation. For those of you who like to read Greek, Luke filled that in there for us. That's wonderful. Who was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time, she became sick and died. And her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lida was near Joppa. It's about 10 or 12 miles away. And so when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lida, they sent two men to him urged him, please come at once. Peter went with them. and When he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him, crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas, also known as Tabitha, had made while she was still with them. Verse 40, Peter sent them out of the room. Then he got down on his knees, he prayed, and turning to the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes. Seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called the believers and the widows and presented her to them alive. Verse 42, this became known all over Joppa, and many, not all, but many people believed in the Lord. Verse 43, Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. So here we have this passage of Scripture. We've got two stories here, two incredible miracles. There's a man who wasn't able to walk for eight years. Eight years. Not able to work. Not able to get out of bed. Not able to clean himself. Not able to feed himself. Not able to do anything on his own. Totally dependent on other people. Eight years. And then in an instant, immediately, he gets up and walks. Jesus Christ heals him. People believe. Then there's another miracle. There's a woman who's died. She's dead. Peter says, he prays, depends on the Lord. She gets up. She's like, amazing miracle. Okay, why is this here, though? What, what is this about? I'll be candid with you and tell you that Monday when I sat down to start studying this passage and thinking about what will I share with our congregation, different ideas came through my mind. I could talk about God's power that God could still do miracles and talk about the stuff that God's done. I could talk about how God gives gifts in different packages, different ways. You see it in this passage. But I asked myself the question, and it's a great question to ask yourself when you're studying the Scriptures, is why did the author who's writing this book put this here? Why at this time? Why does he share? Other than just, hey, two more stories, two cool stories. Because Luke doesn't really say, he doesn't make comments about this. He doesn't say many things that, that have to do with what's happening in this story. So why is it here? The advantage of going through a book, the way that we're doing through the book of Acts, where we start at the beginning and we go through, is we can see the flow of the argument the author's making. But what you have to do every once in a while is back up and see what's happening. And so we back up and get a big picture of what's happened up until this point. Remember Acts chapter 1, we start off, we're given our mission as followers of Jesus Christ. You will be my witnesses, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And then he gives a geography. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and all Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world. So that's your mission. That's why you're here as a believer of Jesus, why he doesn't take you immediately to heaven. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ, he leaves you here to be his witness. And then you see all these geographical statements of where, which is interesting. Not only is this the mission for the church, God's movement, but it's also the outline of this book all the way through. And what happens in Acts chapter 2 is that Peter stands up in Jerusalem and he preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus died to pay for sins, rose from the dead, people can repent, place their faith in Jesus. That day, 3,000 people do just that. The church begins, and then we begin to see that the church is God's plan for reaching the world, for putting Jesus Christ on display. In fact, it's plan A, there is no plan B. It's God's plan to work through the local church, and he starts this church in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 2 through Acts chapter 7, everything we see of the first five years of the church is the development of the church in Jerusalem. Everything happens there in Jerusalem. Those of you who are here, when we did Acts chapter 8, you may remember the gospel goes to a Samaritan. We talked about how God's grace is for all. How Jews hate Samaritans. How they would pray that in the resurrection God wouldn't remember Samaritans. How much you had to hate somebody to want them to go to hell. But there's a deacon from the church named Philip. He goes to the Samaritan town, preaches the gospel to them. They get saved. Then they send a guy, Peter, to go and see if it's legit. And it's legit. What happens is God starts to work in Peter who's a Jew who's leading this church in Jerusalem who'd be growing up in a culture that would hate Samaritans and would also hate Gentiles. What happens in Acts chapter 9, we get this little parenthetical of Saul coming to Christ, which is going to set up some stuff that's going to take place later. But really the context is what happened in Samaria. And then we see Peter going around, preaching to different places now. Now he's going to Gentile places. Jews hate Gentiles. We're six years into this journey. The church starting, not one Gentile has come to Christ. If what's about to happen in Acts, in Acts chapter 10, doesn't happen, then what Christianity is, it's another sect of Judaism. Acts chapter 10 is about to be an incredible breakthrough. It's revolutionary for Christianity, for changing the world. But right now we're still in Acts chapter 9. Because right now we're in a place of preparation. And what Luke the author is doing is preparing us for what's about to happen next week. And you'll hear more about this next week. Pastor Jason will be sharing from Acts chapter 10. And what's happening in the life of Peter is that God's preparing Peter for what's about to happen. And one of the things we see that he uses, we're going to see four things that God will use oftentimes to prepare us. Not every time, it's not a formula, but oftentimes God uses these things. And one of the things that God often uses to prepare us is placement. God prepares us through placement. And by placement, I don't just mean physical location, but I mean that. But stage of life, circumstances, job, the relationship that you're in, the financial situations you're in, the health situation that you're in, where he has you right now, that's placement. And God uses place. When he uses it here with Peter, he moves him from Jerusalem, which would be the, the Mecca, the core, where the home church is at, where the Jewish church is at. And he goes to a town named Lida, or Lida. It's 25 miles northeast of Jerusalem. It's a Gentile commercial town. Then we go to the second miracle. He's in Joppa, which is 10 to 12 miles further away, which is more Gentile. And all the people he comes into contact with are Jewish people still. He's preparing him, but he's putting him in a place. And if you think about the preparation of our lives, God's continually preparing us. He's preparing us for stuff all the time. And even if you're not a believer, you can think about life and just think about you've been in perpetual states of preparation throughout life. Even when you were a kid, you have all that fun playing and doing all that stuff, but eventually they teach you reading, writing, and arithmetic. Why? They're getting you ready so you can learn stuff at school for the next grade. What is school all about? Well, you've got to get into college, and so they're getting you ready for college, and you prepare for getting into college. And you prepare for preparation for college. You prepare for ACT, you prepare for SAT. You get into college and it takes you a year or so to figure out what your major is gonna be and they start preparing you for a career path. And so you start preparing for that career path and then you get out, now you gotta have a real job. Hopefully, Lord willing, that's what ends up happening. So they prepare you for an interview and you do all kinds of training and preparation for an interview. And Then you get a job and you start living a regular life and being responsible and maybe you meet somebody. Now you gotta prepare for a date, gotta brush your teeth. (laughs) Clean yourself up, guys. I mean, ladies, I don't think you need to be told that. However, I'm helping you out, ladies. But at any rate, so you prepare. You get ready for the date, right? And then if you like the person a lot, and maybe you decide you want to get married, you prepare not just for the wedding, although there's a ton of preparation for that. Prepare for a marriage relationship, a committed relationship with one another. Then you decide you're going to have kids. And once you start having kids, then, then what happens? You prepare for those kids. <laughs> I'm sure you can prepare for kids, but you buy a crib, okay? And you buy a teddy bear. You're, you're preparing for the kids, and the kids come out, and you go, I got to prepare for their wedding. And prepare for their college. By the way, I'd like to stop working someday so I'm going to prepare for retirement. We're in this like perpetual state of preparation. But it's interesting that we rarely think about being prepared for God's plan for us. But see, God talks about this. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, he says this, that we're God's workmanship. That God's made us uniquely, specifically, fearfully, and wonderfully, each one of us. We're God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. He talks about those good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. So God's already prepared before the foundations of the earth, a plan for your life, exact works, exact things he wants you to do. But not only does he prepare works for us, he prepares us for those works. Not only does God prepare something, a plan for us, he prepares us for that plan. In Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6, that we can be confident of this, that he who began a good work in us, when you, if you haven't trusted Christ as your Savior, his only plan for you is that you trust Jesus right now. If you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, he's working in you. You can be confident of this, that he who began a good work and he will be faithful to complete it. And it's a process. Part of that process is preparation. And one of the things he uses is placement. It's the very thing he uses here with Peter. Look at it. It says, As Peter traveled about the country, after the Samaritan encounter, he starts going around. What's God doing in other places outside of Jerusalem? 25 miles northeast or northwest of Jerusalem. He goes and he visits the saints in Lydda. So there's already believers there. And he goes to this place, this Gentile place. You see, Jews hated Gentiles so much. This is what Peter grew up in. This is the political environment. This is the relational environment. This is the situation. Jews hated Gentiles so much. There was actually a rule that if you were a midwife, that'd be somebody that would help give birth to children. If you were a midwife, a Jewish midwife, and a Gentile woman was giving birth to a child, you were not to help her. Because by doing so, you would propagate Gentile scum. That's the environment that Peter's in and he's going to this Gentile town. God has him exactly where he wants him, doing the things he's going to do to teach him, to shape him, to get his heart ready, to get his physical location ready so that he's accessible. At the end of the story, he's in Joppa. That's 35 miles northwest of Jerusalem. It's a very Gentile town. He could go back home, but he stays there so he's accessible to what's going to happen in Acts chapter 10. God's got him in a place of preparation and it's the exact placement that he has him in. That's where he has some of us. But see, what's funny about this is that we can read the Bible like this. I read Acts chapter 9. What's going on here, Luke? Why'd you put this here? Well, I can read Acts chapter 10 to try and figure that out. Peter couldn't read Acts chapter 10. He was living in Acts chapter 9. You and I, we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We might plan and we might think we know what's going to happen. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We don't know what's going to happen when church is done. We don't know any of the details of the future. But what we can do is we can look back to the past. Can't you look back to the past and see how God's had you in a place before to prepare you for where you are now? I just think about it with jobs that I've had. I look back at jobs. I remember having certain jobs that I hated when I was doing them. But now I look up and I see how God used that. To, it actually changes the way I do the job that I'm doing now, which I enjoy, by the way. I love our church. I think we've got a great church. But God used those things back then to prepare me for what was happening now. There was a, one I was telling the first service about one job I had. I was at a church. I was an intern, which is the lowest level you can be at a church, by the way. It's, you want coffee? I'm running. You know, that's the kind of what intern is. It was a very large church, had 20,000 members at the time, and attendance was crazy on the weekends. And the department that I oversaw, we just had, we had 2,000 people just in young marriage. So that was like a mega church just in that age division. Every Monday when I came into the office, There'd be a sheet of paper, or multiple sheets of paper, actually, but on my seat, there'd be this paper sitting there that had a list of everybody in the age group that I oversaw that had visited the church that Sunday. Now, the likelihood I met any of these people in person, very small. So when I got that list, I would look at it, and I would think to myself, this is just a to-do. I would literally throw it in the passenger seat of my car so that when I was driving, doing other errands, I could call these people, and that was just something to get checked off at first until I started having conversations with some different people and realizing why it is they came to church and what brought people. Some people curious, some people just want to network because it was a large church. That was why they would come. All kinds of different motives. Some people, you know, spouse made them come. Friend invited me, told me to buy me, you know, lunch if I came or whatever type deal that that would happen. Every once in a while, you get these people, it's like that was kind of their last shot. They were just giving God a shot. And what happened is I realized how important every guest is to God and it changes the way that we treat our guests here at Southbridge what we would talk about from the beginning, early days of our church. Because of that, the job that I thought was such a tedious task at the time. I think about other jobs that I've had. I worked at General Motors uh, between about 1995 and 1998 while I was in college. When I wasn't taking classes, I'd work at General Motors on the assembly line. Probably my least favorite, I've had worse jobs as far as like pay and all that kind of stuff, but my least favorite job was that one. Worked on vans and trucks. And so if you bought a van or truck and had problems with the muffler or the doors or the seatbelt between 1995 and 1998 from General Motors, I personally apologize to you, okay? (laughs) Probably talking to somebody. I don't know what happened, but it was bad news. And uh, I remember, it takes about a day or two days maybe to figure out how to do one of these jobs. My mom told me that the first day I worked on mufflers that I actually came home, I laid down, we had a leather couch, and it was so hot, I just laid down on this couch, fell asleep. She said, I sat up in my sleep and started bolting things together. <laughs> so it's, it's a mindless job after you've done it a couple times, and so these shifts are like 10 to 12 hours long, and I go into the shop and start working, and it was like I was counting on the seconds until I got to leave that place. I wasn't thinking about what I was doing, but as I look back on it, I realized I was a new believer at that time. came to Christ in 1995, and I had a lot of questions. Is Jesus really the only way? It might be the way that I'm going, but is it? Questions about salvation. Can you lose your salvation? What is prayer? What, does it change anything? Am I supposed, why do I do this? How is it supposed to go? Do I have to speak in King James? Like All, that, all these thoughts are going through my mind during these 10- and 12-hour shifts. That shape the way that I think about God today. He used that as part of preparation. And many of you, you can probably see that as you look back in your own life at different circumstances you've been in, at different situations you've been in, at different things. Maybe you were being trained for something else law school, military, various different things. But God was really doing a work in you to refine you for the plan that He has for you. And you can look back at it and see it now because you're in these situations. See, God doesn't make a mistake in the spots He puts you in. In fact, Acts chapter 17, verse 26, the Apostle Paul is speaking to some philosophers on Mars Hill. He says this to them. He said, from one man he made every nation of all people that they should inhabit the whole earth. He determined the time set for them so that you would live in this generation and the exact places where they should live. He cares. The exact, not just city or county or neighborhood, the exact place where you would live next to your exact neighbors with your exact coworkers. All that stuff has been orchestrated by God. Not a hair falls from your head that he doesn't know about. And he's puts you in the exact spot that he wants you. It's not an accident. I had a couple email me uh, just last week, and they actually told me that I could share this email. In fact, they may be here today. They said they might make the trip to, to Southbridge. They don't live in town here, but they told me the story about how they came to Southbridge the very first time. And started off the email and said uh, that when they first visited, people were incredibly friendly, uh, some of the nicest, most welcoming people they had come into contact with. And so I just want to say thank you for those of you who are super friendly. Those of you who are mean, I'm not talking to you, but those... Rest of you, thank you. I'm just kidding. I don't think there's any mean people. Those of you, you don't even know how much you can impact somebody's life just by being friendly and welcoming and warm when somebody comes. So many people have thoughts or insecurities or wonders about coming to church, whether they're even able to come to church, be judged, all that stu- type of stuff. Well, this couple shared their story with me in this email, and it was a little bit longer, so I won't tell you all the details, but they were living a uh, pretty sinful life. And they had made some bad decisions recently, and the, their lives had taken a turn, kind of a dark turn, was the description that they gave, and uh, they were at an apartment complex across the street, had gotten in a fight on a Saturday night, and decided kind of as a last chance effort, they were going to go to church the next day. And so I'm going to read you exactly uh, what this gentleman shared with me in his email to me um, this week, this section at least. He said, I searched for a church. You guys were literally across the highway from the apartment complex we were staying in. So we went there. You had preached about living a sinful life, how you need to change that how it can ruin a relationship, and how it's not an easy thing to change. Right then and there, we stopped believing in coincidences and knew the Lord was talking. There are many more details to this story, but I do not want to bore you too much. Long story short, we got saved, compliments of Southbridge, and our relationship pulled a 180-degree turn. (laughs) Now, do you think it was a coincidence that they lived right across the street, at that exact time in their life, they don't live in, in Raleigh anymore. They're a couple hours away. They would have that fight the night before I would be speaking on that thing. And just so you know, every once in a while, somebody will say to me, uh, "You're talking to me when you're saying this in your message. You've been reading our mail." Let me just say something. I don't read any you of your mail. Um, I, uh, I'm not necessarily picking out a person uh, when I say certain things. And I did not, for sure, on Monday when I sat down to study for that passage that week a few years ago. I didn't sit down and go, all right, Lord, there's a couple across the street that hasn't gone to church ever before, and they're going to have a fight on Saturday night, and when they come, I'm going to say this. I didn't know that, but God had that, them in that exact situation, so they would come, and you know what? They'd be greeted by the exact person they were greeted by that day, and they'd be loved and cared for and welcomed, and, and then I would say, God would have me say the exact things, and he was preparing them through their placement, the exact stage of life, the exact circumstances they were in, exact location that they lived in, because of the plan that he had for them. And the plan for them at that moment in that time was their salvation. Now they've placed their faith in Jesus Christ, um, connected with a church, and uh, they're about to get married, by the way. And so God's done a work in them that's probably going to change generations in their family. And he used some of you, and he used me. It was all part of the preparation, of the plan that he had for them, and many of us were in that spot where God's preparing us. He us exactly where he has us for a reason. God uses placement to prepare us. Not only does he use placement to prepare us, God prepares us also through his power. That's our second point. God prepares us through his power. Now, I don't just mean his power in us. That's kind of obvious. He also does it through the demonstrations of his power in our lives, and we see two of them in this passage of Scripture. So Peter's in Lydda, this town, this Gentile town, and there he found a man, verse 33, Named Aeneas, a paralytic who had been bedridden for eight years. Remember, this is first century bedridden. There's no memory foam, no TVs on arms above your bed. Eight years, a long time. And uh, Peter sees him. He says, Aeneas, verse 34, Peter said to him, Notice Aeneas isn't the one crying out for help. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't ask Peter to heal him, Peter takes the initiative. It's much like you see Jesus Christ in the Gospels. When he sees someone, his heart goes out to them. He has compassion upon them. He's moved by our pain. It appears here that Peter is moved by the pain that he sees in this man's life. And Peter says, Jesus Christ heals you. There's a lesson there, by the way, too, that Peter's not trusting in himself. He doesn't say, be healed. I heal you. Peter would have said that at one point in his life. Remember, in the Gospels, there was a time when he says, Jesus, if everybody else denies you, I won't. Trusting in his own strength. That didn't work out well. You can read the rest of the story yourself. But here he says, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up, take care of your mat. That's the bed that he'd be lying on. And immediately, Aeneas got up. The man who's had to have people change his, his bed for the last eight years gets up, picks it up himself. Verse 35. All those who lived in Light End, Sharon, Sharon's a coastal plain area that's near there, saw him and turned to the Lord. There's an amazing demonstration of God's power. Salvation. In verse 36, we see there's another story. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. And then she gets described in the last part of that verse who was always doing good and helping the poor. And so she's a follower of Jesus Christ. And you see she's doing the works that God's prepared in advance for her to do. But about that time, same time that this man was healed back in, in Lydda, about that time, she became sick and she died. And her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. So she dies, they anoint her body, and they put her in the attic. Is that normal? If somebody dies that you know, do you put them in your attic? Please don't raise your hands. <laughs> That's weird. So Luke's telling us, hey, pay attention. This is strange. It was strange then too. That wasn't the custom. All right, clean her up and put her in the attic. That's not, not what you do. Verse 38 says that, that Lida was near Joppa. So when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lida, they sent two men to him and urged him, please come at once. Now the question is why? Why? She's dead. What is he going to do? And just for the record, because sometimes you read the Bible and you're like, well, we're going to raise her from the dead. Okay, well, if someone dies that you know, do you pray that the God would raise them from the dead? We're six years into this movement. We, haven't, we don't have one recorded, not just in the, not in the book of Acts, and any recordings of any person being raised from the dead. What we see here is some incredible faith by these people. What they're saying is, God can raise, If God can, he made that guy walk. We just heard about this, about 10, 12 miles away from here. So maybe he can... And see what God does with His power is oftentimes He puts His power on display, brings Himself glory in that moment. But He also uses that to build our faith for the future, for the things He has for us in the future. Whether it's a difficult circumstantial face, the provision, some guidance you'll need, a relational difficulty. If I could trust God with this demonstration of power I saw in the past, certainly I can trust Him here. Think about the Israelites in the desert. When they saw God part the Red Sea, wipe out the Egyptians. Other nations would say to the Israelites, "Your God parted the sea." So, if your God can do that, we're afraid to go to battle with you. How many times do you think Israelites themselves said, Our God parted the sea? If I can trust Him to part the sea, He can handle my marriage. If I can trust Him to part the sea, then He can provide food, manna. (laughs) If I can trust Him with this in the past, then certainly I can trust Him with it. Now, think about being a New Testament believer. Forget parting the sea. You say that you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that means that you believe this, that you believe that Jesus Christ was fully God, fully man, came to earth, lived a perfect life. Process that for a moment. Lived a life you couldn't live, then died on the cross. When he died, how come his life could count for more than one other person? Because he was God. Let that process for a moment. He paid for your sins when he died on the cross. He was buried, dead for three days. He was God. He was dead for three days. Then after three days, he's raised from the dead by the power of the Spirit, the very power that we claim is at work within us. Amen. You believe that? If you believe that, see, sometimes you bump into Christians, they'll say, well, I'm a Christian, but I, just, and I don't know if Jesus really fed 5,000 people with some kid's lunch. I don't know, there's probably like a sandbar there. He wasn't walking on water. There had to be some explanation to this. Listen, you believe God died, was in the grave for three days, then rose from the dead, and you're having a hard time believing he can walk on water? Are you kidding me? See, we get numb to the gospel sometimes. It's kind of, yeah, 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 Jesus died, He rose again. I got a friend who has uh, planted a church in Dubai, and he was talking about how he preached uh, there one time. There's a woman from Japan there came up to his wife afterwards and said, So you're saying this Jesus guy died and rose again? And his wife said, Yeah. She goes, I got to think about that. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> I mean, we just kind of like say, Yeah, yeah, that's why I believe that, and it, it gives me benefits, I'll take it. You know, it's kind of, are you crazy? Like Think about what, what, what we're talking about here. If you believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again, why do you have a hard time believing anything else? That's what these guys were saying. Jesus Christ was God, died, rose from the dead, gives us life. If he wants to raise Tabitha, he can. If I can believe him for that, then I can certainly believe him for this. And Some of you are believers in Jesus Christ. and You say you get in a difficult situation. Well, it'll take a miracle. Okay. He still does those. Do you believe him? Because he uses that power to prepare you for the very things he's going to put in your path in the future. He's got a plan for you and preparing you for that plan. And some of you, you see gone beyond just that. He's gotten so intimate. He's answered specific prayer. You've seen him answer specific prayer and demonstrate his power. You've seen him change people's lives that you're close to, not just yours, but other people's. You might be, you've seen healings. Do you have those moments where you go back to, kind of like the Red Sea or like the cross where you're like, if he can handle this, then he's got this. That's how he uses his power to prepare us. And here he does it in this passage of scripture. It says, they come to Peter. They say, please come at once. In verse 39, Peter went with them. And when he arrived, he was taken up into that attic room. There's a bunch of widows there. And we know that widows and orphans are the most vulnerable in this culture because they couldn't work. Women couldn't get a job in that culture like they can in our culture. and have life insurance like we have in our culture. There's no government assistance. You know what their plan was? Their friends. Their network. Apparently this woman, Dorcas or Tabitha, was part of that network. These widows, they sit around him. They're crying. They're weeping. They're showing him their robes. That word "showings" in the middle voice. That means this. They're probably showing the clothes they're wearing. This is probably a moving scene. I imagine every article of clothing that Tabitha made for these women told a story. Peter, do you see this sweater? Tabitha brought this to my house right after my husband died. Tabitha, do you see this? It was right after after a year at a year anniversary of his death or maybe on his, the first birthday that we would have celebrated after he died and it's probably a very moving scene and Peter's a compassionate man but he says everybody leave the room verse 40 and he gets down on his knees and he prays again showing it's not his power it's god's power and then turning towards the dead woman he said tabitha get up she opens her eyes if I'm Peter I'm like it worked you know whoa He's looking at me and seeing Peter, she sat up and he took her by the hand and he helped her to her feet and then he called the believers and the widows and presented her to them alive. And verse 42. This became known all over Joppa and many people believed in the Lord. There's the power. That's conversion. Now everyone didn't believe. Isn't that interesting? said so all the people believed. Maybe it's hyperbole in verse 35 that everyone there believed because a guy who wasn't able to walk for eight years is able to walk. But then somebody is raised from the dead and many people believe. Everyone doesn't believe. And you know what the reality is? There are people that it doesn't matter what they see, what questions you answer, they will not place their faith in Jesus Christ. And woe to you if you're one of those people. That's a dangerous place. You're in trouble. But many people did believe. And how many of those people do you think later on go back and say, if God could raise Tabitha from the dead, then certainly he can handle this. And do you have those moments you go back to say if he could do if he could cleanse me of all of my sins see the gospel's power Romans chapter 1 says in verse 16 I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation for the Jew first and then for the Gentile creation is a demonstration of God's power even if you're not a Christian all these things working together you think it's by chance are you kidding me Gravity is by chance and so is the oxygen and how that works and the food cycle and the whole system there. It's like God's symphony. He's putting on display his power for us that it all works together. At one moment, the heavens declare his glory. And it's not just a beautiful sunset. It's that, but it's more. It's his power. And his power prepares us for his plan for us. Not only does he use his power, he also uses pain. God prepares us through pain. That's the third way that we see in this passage of Scripture that God prepares us. It'd be easy to read this passage and just be excited about the miracles that are done. And then they're great. And and we should do that. But we don't want to miss the pain. Eight years this guy was in bed. Eight years. As a man in this culture, where his wife would not be able to go out and work, how do you put food on the table? Because you're being held responsible for that. What do you think that felt like to him? Eight years. Eight years, total burden, not only to himself, but to everybody around him. Probably tried everything in eight years. Every option, every doctor option, every other alternative option, everything for eight years. How many times do you think he laid in bed and just thought, God, just take me? Eight years, that's pain. But God doesn't waste that pain. Then you see this woman. She gets sick enough that she dies. And let me tell you something if there's one person in this passage of Scripture you should feel bad for, it's this woman. Why she gets brought back to life? She gets more life. Yeah, but think about it. In verse thirty-six, we're told she's a follower of Jesus Christ, and she's living the life that God has for her. She's doing the works that God prepared in advance for her to do. He's doing a work and completing. He's going to complete it. You know what the Bible says about when you die? If you're a follower of Jesus, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. She was with Jesus Christ in heaven. You know what the Bible says about heaven? There's no crying. There's no pain. There's no tears. There's no sickness. There's no death. It describes how beautiful the place is. Walls built, you know, jasper and all kinds of jewels and streets of gold that are so gold that they're transparent. They're like glass. You can see through them. There's no temple because God himself is the temple. There's no sun because there's no night. God's glory is the light and it shines it all the time. But there's no crying. Imagine that. No cancer, no sickness, no death, no rape, none of that stuff. She was there and she had to come back here and go through it again. Because she's going to die again. But God doesn't waste that pain. It's kind of like the story that you read about in John chapter 11. It's somewhat parallel to this passage of scripture. And what happens in John chapter 11 is that Jesus has a friend who dies. His name is Lazarus. He's friends with uh, Mary and Martha, his sisters as well. And Jesus doesn't come until after Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. He's been dead for four days. When he gets there, people are saying to him, why didn't you come sooner? Because if you had shown up while he was still alive, you could have done something. Obviously now you can't do anything. And Jesus in that story is going to raise Lazarus from the dead as well. There's a verse in there. It's the shortest verse in the New Testament. John chapter 11, verse 35 says, Jesus wept. It's interesting to me because scholars and commentators, you could read, if you have a study Bible, you might look up in the, the notes even in there, and they'll say all kinds of different reasons why it is that Jesus is weeping here. He's weeping because he sees Mary and Martha and his heart goes out to them and he's crying for them. He's crying because he loved Lazarus so much and he's lost his friend. Now I believe, and we don't know this for sure, but I believe, so I'm not saying you should believe this, I believe the reason why that Jesus is crying in that passage of Scripture is because he knows what he's about to do. He's about to bring his friend who spent four days in heaven. Four days with no crying and no pain and no sickness and, and who knows better than Jesus what it's like to be there and to come here. And to know pain and to know suffering. Does anyone know suffering more than Jesus Christ? Jesus has suffered in ways that if you're a believer in Jesus, you'll never suffer. And and even if you're not a believer in Jesus, you haven't suffered yet. He knows the full wrath of God. I mean, obviously there's the physical beating and the thorn crowns and the nails through the hands and the floggings and all that stuff. But he knows what it is to be forsaken by God, to be totally separated from God. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you'll never know that. You'll never know that pain. But when you experience pain here on earth, you you get to know Jesus in a way that you can't outside of pain and he doesn't waste that pain he uses to put his glory on display the question is are you willing to be a vessel for his glory because oftentimes you talk about preparation we talk about pain well he's preparing me for a miraculous healing not necessarily he's just preparing you because he wants to put his glory on display through your life and maybe that means death it did for this woman then she came back and she's going to have to go through it again he doesn't waste the pain though the same as we can look back at past jobs, look back at past pain in your life and see if you're in it right now, it's hard to see it. But if, you're, if you've had pain in the past, you can oftentimes look back and see how God's used that now or, or how he's used it even in, in other times in the past, past that moment. I, I can think back to November 15th, year 2000. I remember I was out hunting with my brother-in-law and my father-in-law. It was opening day of deer season in Michigan and we're out there sitting in the cold. I don't know what I'm thinking, hanging out with these guys out there Got a gun, hoping an animal comes by so that we have some meat. Oh, there's also the grocery store, whatever. And uh, I remember that day very vividly. My brother-in-law actually shot a deer, and it came running up to about where I was at and then collapsed. <laughs> I thought, hey, I l- not look at how good I am. I didn't even shoot it. And uh, ran up there. It just falls down. He had shot it. I heard a gunshot a little bit before that. And, and then my brother-in-law and father-in-law, you know, end up calling each other on these little walkie-talkies, and we meet at the deer. And then my father-in-law looks at me and says, your dad passed away today see it was before I had a cell phone and what had happened was the church that I was working at at the time actually called my father-in-law because he had a cell phone and told him but he wanted to wait until we were face to face to tell me and I remember when he told me that it was just like everything went numb and we got in the car and my brother-in-law took care of his deer and, and we drove back I think it was about an hour drive and I don't think I said a word I don't even know if I had a thought I remember seeing fields of some of the farms we drove by I can still picture them right now and it was about an hour-ish and it was like I didn't have any feelings. And then I remember very vividly opening my apartment door. My new wife, Shanna, standing there. And I just look at her and I say, is it true? And then I can see that she's been crying, so I just start weeping. Because it hurt. And then here I was, just out of college. I got to plan my dad's funeral and, you know, figure out all the details that go along with all that. And people are coming in town and all kinds of people show up and there's viewings. And the people come, they want to tell stories and they say all this stuff. And eventually you don't even want to hear it. But there were a few people... Everybody had good intentions. There were a few people that said things that were so comforting and so meaningful. And interestingly enough, I now deal with a job where we talk about death regularly. Everyone thinks about when they die, and if you don't, you should. What happens after you die? And then sometimes there are those occasions where somebody does die. Or someone you know someone who loves someone, and that person passes away, and, and as a pastor, you get invited into those situations. Do you know that I've actually said verbatim Exact statements that were said to me about 13 years ago when my dad died to people. I can think about a situation where I was in the living room of a home here in Raleigh, and a man is in my arms. He's bigger than me, but he's crying in my arms. And uh, I said exactly something that touched my heart 13 years before. God doesn't waste that pain. He uses that, and some of that time period is a time of preparation for us. I was reading uh, in a book this week, uh, Where's God When It Hurts by Philip Yancey. Great book if you're going through difficult stuff. He got a chapter in there where he specifically talks about people that were in concentration camps in Nazi Germany and the stuff that they went through. And uh, there's a quote in there by a philosopher named Nietzsche, and Nietzsche says that any man can go through pain if he knows the why. If he knows the why. But he shares of a guy that was in one of these camps in uh, Munich, Nazi Germany. Was there for four years, this guy, and the reason why he was in there was because he was part of the Confessing Church, got turned in by his church organist for being part of the Confessing Church, for professing Jesus Christ as Savior, uh, founded by Dietrich Bonhoeffer and and some other guys that were against Hitler, and uh, got thrown in this camp. Terrible circumstances, terrible stories. Um, You can read it for yourself if you want those details, but the guy says it wasn't about the why, it was about the who. It was who he got to know. And it was Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ was there in all the suffering. Jesus Christ was there when children were being executed. And Jesus was there, and he knew, and he was, he was through the suffering with him. He knows suffering more than anyone else, as we've already talked about. He doesn't waste that. And that man learned the who in that suffering. And do you know him through the suffering? Paul says, I want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of sharing in his death and suffering. No, him that intimate way, God doesn't waste that pain. He uses it as part of our preparation for his plan for us. The fourth thing he uses, I'll just say very quickly, is people. He uses other people. Verse 43 says that Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. What's interesting about this is this verse is really a bridge to Acts chapter 10. It sets us up for what's about to happen because Peter's now staying with a man who's unclean. He's a tanner, which means that he deals with dead carcasses of animals. Leviticus chapter 11 says any animal, whether it's a clean animal or an unclean animal, in the Levitical law, which we're no longer under, but it says in that time period, they're still figuring that stuff out. It says anybody touches a dead carcass, they're unclean. That means they can't worship at the temple. That means you shouldn't have anything to do with them. Tanners were required to have their business 50 cubits outside of town. If you got engaged to someone, you found out that they had something to do with tannery, you were allowed to divorce them. This is a bad deal. Peter's there and God uses this man and Peter's life as a transition and a bridge into what's about to happen in Acts chapter 10. God uses people. People are part of our preparation. Pain's part of our preparation. God's power on demonstration is part of our preparation and his placement is too. Now the question you have to ask is, what's he preparing me for? What is this all about? Am I going through difficult stuff so that then good stuff will happen? Like kind of paying your dues almost. No, not necessarily. Do you go through the pain, eight years of bedridden so that then you could be healed? Well, maybe you'll be eight years in bed and then not get healed. It's not always preparing for miraculous healing Is he preparing me through this so that then I can have this. Maybe I have to live in this situation now so I can have my fantasy situation later. Maybe, I don't know. But we do know his plan. Do you know what his plan is? It's told in this passage. We see it with Peter. He's preparing him to connect this guy in Acts chapter 10 to Jesus Christ for life change. There's two verses in here that emphasize it very clearly and when things are repeated in Scripture, they're important. You've got two verses in this passage of scripture that are repeated, that are almost throwaway verses. You could read by them, like they're just this little summary. Okay, next, give me more details. Verse 35, all those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him turned to the Lord. Verse 42, he saw the man who was bedridden for eight years. Then verse 42, sees this woman. This became known all over Joppa. Many people believe in the Lord. He's preparing you to, guess what? Acts chapter one, verse eight, be his witness. That's his plan for you. His plan for you is to use you and to use your life to connect people to Jesus Christ for life change. The question you have to ask yourself is this. God, how do you want to use my placement right now, the exact situation you have me in, whatever that is, you fill in the blank with the details, to connect people to your son Jesus Christ for life change? God, how do you want to use your past demonstrations of your power and my life to connect people to Jesus Christ for life change? God, how do you want to use my pain that I'm going through right now, that I've been through in the past, or maybe that you're about to go through? Because that's kind of how life works to connect people to Jesus Christ for life change. God, how do you want to use the other people in my life to refine me and make me more like your son Jesus or maybe to connect them to your son Jesus Christ so their lives could be changed because his plan for you is crystal clear that you're to be his witness exactly where you are, where you live and move and have your being and he's placed you there at the exact time and the exact place. He's preparing you for a work because he's continually working in you. He's going to be faithful until the day you're with Jesus Christ to complete that work in you and you're in process and you're in preparation but right now it's to point people to Jesus. So will you do it? Let's pray. Father God, I come before you and I just ask that you'd speak to each one of our hearts. That you'd supernaturally apply this message into the exact circumstances, the exact stage, the exact place, the exact everything that's going on in our lives to speak to us. That we would connect people to your son, Jesus Christ, so that our lives would be changed. And I pray if there are any here that don't know your son, Jesus Christ, I know that's your plan for them right now. And I pray they would place their faith in your son, Jesus, right now. They'd stop waiting, they'd stop hesitating, they'd stop doubting. We just talked about you can raise the dead, you can forgive their sins, you can change their life. Salvation comes through the gospel, and the gospel is the power of God. And we want to see your power at work in their lives. I pray if there's anyone here that needs to trust your son Jesus as Savior, they would do that right now. In fact, right now, if you need to, you can call out on Jesus Christ to be your Savior. He'll save you right now is bow your heart before him and say, God, I'm a sinner and I need you and I believe that you were God, that you died on the cross, that you rose from the dead. If you believe that and place your faith in Jesus, call on him and he will save you from your sins and you can do that right now. And Father, I pray for believers. And God, you've got each one of us in contact with the people you have us in contact with and the circumstances that we're in and all those details that we've talked about today for an exact reason, God. You've prepared works for us in advance for us to do. I pray that we'd be faithful to do those works.